Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to your holy word, we do so knowing that no prophecy of Scripture was produced by the will of man, but rather men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, speak to us now through this, your word. Feed us with the bread of life. And grant your spirit to us to enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your word as it is proclaimed in our hearing. And apply it to our hearts and to our lives that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. For this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you'll please open your Bibles to our sermon text this morning. We're continuing in the book of Jonah, page 774 in the Pew Bibles. We're looking at Jonah chapter 2 this morning, but beginning in the last verse of chapter 1, verse 17. So Jonah chapter 117 through 210. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is our third week studying the book of Jonah, seeing that this book is about our sin and about God's grace. Last time we left off the story with Jonah being hurled off the ship into stormy seas. And this morning we come to the part of the story that Jonah is famous for, the great fish. Although the fish is mentioned only briefly when he swallows Jonah and then when he vomits Jonah out, Jonah spends three days and three nights inside. And of course, this extraordinary event, it captures the imagination. It makes for a great children's story, and it's just so memorable. But as I said previously, it's not really about the fish itself, but it's about how the Lord uses this fish to reveal himself, the greatness of his mercy the wonders of his salvation. 
All this is necessary because just like Jonah, we need to be rescued. Not necessarily rescued from the sea, but rescued from our sin, rescued from sin's penalty, death. And we'll see this morning that Jonah didn't even realize the depth of his need, the depth of his sin, and therefore the greatness of God's grace to him. And while Jonah himself isn't isn't an example to be followed, if anything, the whole lesson of this book is don't be like Jonah. In many interesting ways, Jonah does still point forward to the Savior who was to come after Jonah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning we'll learn about God's salvation in three ways. First, that God's salvation is marvelous. Second, that God's salvation is gracious and merciful. And third, that God is sovereign in salvation. So first, God's salvation is marvelous. Last time we ended with Jonah being thrown off the ship into stormy seas, and then the sea ceased its raging. And then the narration followed the experience of the sailors as we see their conversion, how they break out into worship of the Lord. And then in verse 17, where we picked up this morning, it returns to the experience of Jonah. He had been thrown in with the expectation that he was going to his death. And Jonah deserved to die for running from the Lord. I think he went into the waves, as I said last time, with mixed motives. He was going in to save the sailors, but there was a part of him that was glad that he was getting out of his mission to Nineveh. But the Lord was not finished with Jonah. And so, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That's crucial to recognize that being swallowed by the fish was not a punishment. This was a mercy. If God had not sent this fish, then Jonah surely would have drowned. And clearly the Lord had planned this out ahead of time. Fish like this are not a dime, a dozen, so surely the fish was ready. It was standing by. Now we see in Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 that the fish did not swallow him right away, as may have been applied if you just read verse 17. Jonah spent considerable time struggling in the water. He nearly drowned, but the Lord had planned his salvation all along. But this method of salvation by fish, it's completely unexpected. It is extraordinary. It is meant to cause you to marvel, to cause you to say, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Psalm 72, 18. People naturally ask questions like, what kind of fish was it? Was it a whale, as people often say? The Hebrew word doesn't distinguish between cold-blooded and warm-blooded sea creatures, scaled or mammal, so perhaps it was a whale. It seems logical, but the real answer is the Bible doesn't tell us. It remains a mystery. Connected with this question is the question of historicity, plausibility, possibility, and Skeptics, of course, subject. It's deeply implausible for even a a giant, the, the biggest of whales, to swallow a man. And it's frankly impossible for a man to breathe inside of a whale's stomach. But that's ultimately because skeptics, atheists, they believe in a closed universe. They deny the existence of the miraculous, of divine intervention. But that's exactly what this purports to be, a miraculous salvation of God. You see, the Bible says that God is the creator 
of the world and everything in it. He has established the laws of nature and he upholds all the regular patterns at every moment by his infinite power. And so, yes, we believe in the regularity of nature and ancient people did as well. They may not have had the sophistication of our modern science, but you need to understand the ordinary in order to recognize when something is extraordinary, miraculous. So God upholds the laws of nature, and yet as the sovereign ruler over all things, he reserves the right to suspend those regular laws of nature for his own special purposes. The universe is open to the intervention of its creator. And that's what we see him doing here, working his mighty salvation. He directs the great fish to swallow Jonah in such a way that he is not harmed and he provides for air inside the fish's stomach so that Jonah can live inside for three days and three nights. This is an unexpected way for Jonah to be saved from the sea. And then again, who would have expected for God himself to take on flesh, to be born of a virgin, to live this perfect life, to be crucified, dead and buried, and then to rise again so that you might be saved. In order to be a Christian, you must believe in miracles, most of all in the miracles of Christ's incarnation and his resurrection. The Lord is a wonder-working God as he works for our salvation. Certainly the Lord could have saved Jonah in a more ordinary way. He could have sent a piece of driftwood for him to hold on to. And you could think of other possibilities as well. But that would not have caused us to marvel. Salvation by this great fish comes completely out of left field. It is a magnificent surprise. And it tells us you cannot put God in a box. He will not always act as you expect him to. His ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts than our thoughts. As Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. He delights in doing the unexpected so as to leave his people's mouths agape in awe. So first, God's salvation is marvelous. Second, we see this morning that God's salvation is gracious and merciful. And here we move to chapter 2, where Jonah prays to the Lord from the belly of the fish. And the fact that he prays first shows that the Lord has worked at least a small miracle in Jonah's heart. For we saw last time how the captain had commanded Jonah to cry out to his God, and he absolutely refused to do so. Jonah was fleeing from the Lord. The last thing he wanted to do was to talk to God. So what has happened that Jonah is now praying? We see that he has been severely humbled. Specifically, he came face to face with death, and he realized he was not ready to die. And now he finally prays to the Lord, and this is at least, we see, his second prayer. This is the prayer of thanksgiving, giving thanks and praise to the Lord for his salvation. Even though he's not yet out of the belly of the fish, he trusts that the Lord has brought him this far and he will bring him safely home. But he also recounts a a previous prayer, a prayer for his deliverance. 
Uh, before we look more closely at the content of the prayer, first notice the overall structure, the overall nature of the prayer. You'll see that it's set in poetic lines, and as you read through it, you notice that if it weren't here, smack dab in the middle of the book of Jonah, you would think this is one of the Psalms. It has similarities to Psalm 18, to Psalm 116, to Psalm 30, which we sang earlier this morning. Jonah is even quoting portions of some psalms as echoing others as he prays. If you have a Bible with cross-references, that's what you'll notice. Every line has references to one psalm or another. Some scholars even think this whole prayer was already a written psalm which Jonah just recites, but I think it's too well tailored to a situation for that to possibly be the case. I think what happened is Jonah was raised on the Psalms. He had bathed in the Psalms. And so when it comes time for him to pray a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord, the language of the Psalms is what pours out of him. And this is something you still see today. When you hear seasoned saints pray, Often they pray with the language and the rhythms of Scripture. And in fact, this is something we should all be practicing and working towards, regularly praying the Psalms, which give voice to all the emotions of the heart. And as you do so, the language of the Scripture will become your prayer language as well. There's a basic structure here common to Psalms of Thanksgiving. First, there's an overview in verse 2, then he recounts his prior affliction in verses 3 to 6, and then he praises the Lord for his salvation in verses 7 to 9. And we see here how Jonah recounts in vivid detail his near-death experience in the sea. First, the overview in verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You see that basic dynamic. I called out, the Lord answered. He heard my cry. He rescued me. Jonah describes his time in the sea as being in the belly of Sheol. Now, Sheol, if you don't know this, it's the Hebrew word for the grave. Jonah is saying, you've brought me back from the grave, brought me back from death itself. In other words, this is an account of a virtual resurrection. He didn't actually die, but he was as good as dead. Now, the whole account, it continues the downward descent motif that we saw earlier in chapter 1. You recall he went down to Joppa, down to the ship, down into the inner parts of the ship. Now, in these verses, we see him continue downward. First, he's on the surface of the waters. He describes in verse 3, the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. But then by verse 5, he's reached the bottom of the sea. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. So here he's completely submerged. The seaweeds entangled him as he reached the seafloor. He vibrantly describes the seafloor as the roots of the mountains. And he describes this in verse 6 as a watery prison. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Here we see there's no escape for Jonah. And I don't know about you, how you sense this, how how it feels to you, but I certainly get this visceral sense of Jonah's deep terror as his breath is choked out, his 
life is fleeing away from him. And yet he is praying. And so there is hope. And that's where the turn comes at the end of verse 6. Yet you brought, my, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. After all this going down and down and down, finally there is an upwards movement. Salvation comes from the Lord. He is the great deliverer. And so he goes on to praise the Lord in the final verses, including his promise of a future sacrifice to the Lord. And the whole psalm ends with this, this triumphant declaration. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, there are many truths contained in this prayer. There are many exemplary things about it. But when you look at it carefully, when you consider the context of the whole story of Jonah, where he's been, where he's going, there are a few things that stand out. On the surface, everything that Jonah prays, on the surface, it's orthodox. When you know the character of who's praying, everything that's led him to this point, how he ended up in this great affliction, you do start to notice what's conspicuously missing from this prayer. He rejoices in the Lord's salvation, yes, and rightly so, but what is missing? There's no admission of guilt. There's no repentance. Verses 3 and 4 stand out in particular. In verse 3, Jonah credits the Lord with getting him into this whole mess in the first place. Verse 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Wait a second, wasn't it the sailors who threw Jonah into the waters on his instruction? So, of course, it sounds like Jonah is recognizing here the the sovereignty of God. God was sovereign over even the actions of the sailors. Even though they threw him in, it was, in a sense, the Lord who was behind even that. Now, of course, it sounds pious of Jonah to recognize this. But then he continues in verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Now here we have to ask Jonah, what are you talking about? The only thing that was driving Jonah away from the Lord's presence was Jonah's own willful disobedience and rebellion. He was the one running away from the Lord. The Lord was pursuing after him, not driving him away. And yet here he prays as if the Lord himself had driven him away. And so when you put verses 3 and 4 together, you see that, yes, he is, in a sense, acknowledging God's sovereignty. But really, it sounds more and more like he is blaming God for it all. Now, of course, this was all happening according to God's sovereign plan. But Jonah makes no acknowledgement of the role that he has played in causing the disastrous circumstances which he had found himself in. And so the bottom line here is that there's no evidence of a heart of contrition, of repentance, of his own sin, of asking God to grant mercy. Now here is where we would expect the language that we see in David's Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That is completely absent. 
The strange thing is that this, this whole prayer, it sounds exactly like the Psalms of Thanksgiving and deliverance, Thanksgiving for deliverance that were written by David when he was being oppressed by evildoers and when he was innocent. And then the Lord delivered him. But it seems like Jonah has chosen the wrong Psalms on which to model his prayer. And we have verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. This, of course, is a wonderful testimony that God was available, ready to hear and answer Jonah's prayer. And yet there's something a bit off about the way Jonah phrases this. Instead of thanking God for graciously hearing him, the verse is oddly self-congratulatory. It's self-focused. I remember the Lord. My prayer was successful. Instead of simply rejoicing in the Lord's salvation, Jonah can't help. Uh, And then going on, instead of simply rejoicing in the Lord's salvation, Jonah can't help but contrast himself with others, with those he looks down upon. And this is what we see in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, standing alone, this verse is completely true. When you seek after idols, whether the literal false gods that people bowed down to, those statues they worshipped in ancient times, and there are still some who worship idols today, or simply the idols of the heart that we still put before God today. When you do this, you turn your back on the Lord. You distance yourself from his steadfast love. Now Jonah hits on some real truth here. But in Jonah's mouth, in the context of this book, There's a problem here because we know what does he intend to say by this. We know that Jonah has a deep-seated prejudice against idol worshipers. He doesn't want to go to preach to the dirty Ninevites, lest the Lord have mercy on those pagan idol worshipers. He probably didn't care much for those sailors either. He likely has in mind here how those sailors were calling out to all their false gods in the storm, not knowing What happened after he was thrown off of the ship? They abandoned their idols. They have now bowed down to worship the Lord, the one true God. They now know his steadfast love. The great irony here is that what is what Jonah says in the very next verse. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You see that word, but. Jonah is putting a great contrast between those idol worshipers and himself. Does Jonah not recognize that he is promising to do the very thing that those sailors have already done? Jonah cannot wait to offer a sacrifice with songs of thanksgiving. He will fulfill his vow to the Lord. Perhaps this is a renewed promise to faithfully serve the Lord as his prophet. He's just one step behind those sailors that he so looks down upon. All in all, Jonah's prayer, it's a mixed bag. He's rightly giving thanks to the Lord for his salvation. And yet it sounds a bit too much like the prayer of the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, Luke 18, 11. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
Now, if we didn't know the full story of Jonah, what's led up to this situation, where Jonah is going, his future anger at the Lord's mercy to come, we might not recognize that this prayer is not as orthodox as it may appear at first on the surface. And yet, what is the lesson that we should take away from Jonah's prayer? Jonah likely doesn't realize that he hasn't truly and fully repented because he just sees the Lord has had mercy on me. And we see the Lord has plans for him. And Jonah's stubbornness, his hard heart will not stop the Lord's plans from being fulfilled. And what this teaches us, it simply magnifies the grace and the mercy of the Lord. Now later on, Jonah will preach to the Ninevites and they will repent and the Lord will have mercy and Jonah will object and he will be angry. He will say, how will you have mercy on these Ninevites? But we look back here and we see the Lord having mercy to Jonah and we might think, Lord, why would you have mercy on this rebellious prophet? The takeaway for us is if the Lord can have mercy on one like Jonah, and the Lord can have mercy on me. The Lord can have mercy on you. Of course, that's not to say that you shouldn't repent of your sin. The call is always to repent and to believe the gospel. But we recognize that our repentance is always partial. It's always incomplete. We never see the fullness of our sin. You never see the full deceitfulness of your heart. And yet the Lord has mercy. How often do we experience the Lord's grace? And later on, you look back and you see, wow, I still had so far to go. At that time, I repented of this one sin, but I had a hundred more sins that were still ongoing in my life. And yet the Lord had mercy. He continues to have mercy on us, even though we still have so much that we need to repent of. And so, yes, you should pray that the Lord would reveal your sin, that he would give you grace to truly repent, and yet rejoice that God's salvation is gracious and merciful. Third, God is sovereign in salvation. The final line of the prayer is, salvation belongs to the Lord. And here Jonah boldly declares a great truth. Many have said this is, in fact, the theme of the whole book of Jonah, if not one of the great themes of the whole Bible. As we've already seen, the Lord had already determined to save Jonah before he went into the water. The Lord is the one who works salvation to save, who works uh, to save the sailors. Later, we'll see how he's worked throughout the whole book to bring salvation to that whole city of Nineveh. And this is the Lord's doing. It's particularly clear because... It's not really the rebellious prophet Jonah who saves the sailors or saves the Ninevites. He objected to these things. And Jonah is saved by this great fish of all things. And so it's the Lord and only the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And since the Lord is the only Savior in this book, it all points forward. The Savior who was to come, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
As we read earlier, he takes a surprising stance when the Pharisees want him to awe them with signs and wonders. Of course, he had done many miracles. He didn't do them on command. He said, a evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The key to understanding this parallel is that Jesus is predicting not only his time in the grave, but also his emergence from the grave. Just like Jonah's coming out of the depths and then out of the belly of the fish. He is saying that just as Jonah sunk down into the belly of Sheol and then the Lord raised him up, so in a far greater way, the Lord Jesus Christ will truly pass into death itself. He will die, he will be buried, but he will rise again three days later. And he does this so that the Lord might work a marvelous, a gracious, a mighty salvation. Salvation is of the Lord through Jesus Christ. And while you must repent, you must put your faith in him, even this is a gift that God gives you. Even when you turn to him, you will look back and you will say, this is not of my own doing. It is because the Lord gave me faith. As it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And so even the faith by which you receive God's gracious salvation, even that is a gift. In this way, God gets all the glory all the way through. You can never say, the reason I am saved and not that person is because I deserved it more, because I chose to repent and not that person. No, it all depends on God. It all depends on his grace. It's never because of us. The bottom line is that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his gift. It is his grace and his mercy. It is all the Lord. And so, yes, you receive his salvation by repenting, by trusting in Christ. When you do so, it's only because he's given you that gift because he's granted you the gift to do so. And so all the thanks, all the praise go to the Lord who has granted his gracious salvation. So God's salvation is marvelous. It is gracious. It is merciful. It is his alone. And so God receives all the glory. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your wonderful gift of salvation. We look at ourselves and we see that we are full of sin. We don't even know the depths of our sin. And so we do pray that you would grant us a fuller and a truer repentance. We don't deserve your grace, and yet we rejoice in Jesus Christ and what he has done in the wonders of your salvation. Lord, may we more deeply trust in Christ. May we walk in him. May we honor you with our lives because we are filled with gratitude for what you have done 
And so grow us more and more to be like our Savior. Renew us by the power of your Spirit. We give you all the thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.